Praise the Lord. What a wonderful morning of worship. I hope it was for you as well as we focus on our Father in heaven. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Uh, Before I go too much farther, we want to uh, give our condolences as well to the family of Charlie Forge. Um, And uh, you should have received a one call about uh, services uh, for tomorrow. Um, If you uh, didn't get that, please let me know and we'll talk after service. But please keep that family in your prayers as well. Last time... uh, Last time I was here with you, we looked at two parables, the parable of the treasure in the field and the parable of the pearl of great value, and we looked at how Jesus uses those two parables to talk about the great treasure and the great value of the gospel and of the kingdom of God and how we are to hold that dearer and close to our hearts, that, that Christ should be first in our lives with no close seconds, and that our lives should reflect that truth, that people should be able to look at us and, and say there's something different there. They don't value the same things that we value. They, they have a different priority list in their lives, and that it would be influential to those around us, that we may be like those uh, when, that we may be like Paul when he says that if this is not true, if, if the resurrection is not true, then we are to be pitied more than others. And, and just the, the difference that it makes in our lives when we understand that Christ is everything, that he, the gospel is everything, and that there is none like Him. This morning we look at Three more parables in Luke 15, but it's the other side of the coin, so to speak, that it is now not just Christ's value to us, but it's how God values you. How God has shown His great love for you already. And so this morning, we take a look at these three parables. The parable of the lost sheep. The parable of the lost coin and the parable of the prodigal son. And so if you are able, would you please stand with me as we read and honor God's word together. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1, and we will read the entire chapter. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after that that the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost." Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost." Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there is a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So that when he hired, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And when he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what, was these th- what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Father, we recognize, Lord, we recognize as your children that we too were once lost, that we too were once in great need of compassion and of grace. Father, that we have been adopted into this great family, Lord, that extends beyond just the walls of this church, that extends beyond the city limits of Vandalia and the county lines of Audrain that extends throughout all of this world. Lord, that we gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ all over today on this day of Your worship and we join with them and with our voices and with our hearts to declare the goodness of God, to declare His great mercy and great grace to declare his great, your great might. Father, I pray that we would not cease to do so when we walk out these doors, but Father, that we would desire for those that we come into contact to hear the same, that they may know you as well, that what is lost may be found. Father, we thank you again for your great mercy. We pray that you would open our eyes this morning to your word, or that we may apply it to our lives. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we begin with chapter 15, we see the Pharisees are still observing Jesus, still trying to catch Him in something that might be embarrassing, or try to catch Him in saying something that may may be used against Him trying to discredit him in any way that they can find. And one of the things that they notice is that he gathers with tax collectors and sinners. He gathers with those that are the outcasts. This is not, by the way, the first time that Jesus is noticed or that Jesus is accused of gathering with people that are, by the rest of society's standards, less than desirable. And certainly that's what these tax collectors and sinners were. These ta- the tax collectors were often seen as evil people who represented an oppressive government who often lied and cheated and gathered more than what they were supposed to. And so they were reviled, not just by society, but even many times by their own family. The sinners that they're referring to could be those that live lifestyles that outwardly break the law of God. They They had lifestyles that were obvious. Their sin was out in the open for all to observe. And these Pharisees looked at these people and they were the unclean. They were the unworthy to be called part of the family of God. 
And so they separated themselves from them. They, they put up divides between them. They didn't associate themselves with the tax collectors and the so-called sinners. They viewed themselves as more righteous than them. And so when Jesus comes along and begins to, to extend His time and his, his mercy and His love towards these individuals, we see the heart of the Pharisee, the heart of a gr- that grumbles they look at what Jesus is doing. They look at who he's having a meal with. They look at who he is associating with. And they begin to judge Christ for those things, for those relationships. You can imagine them saying things like, how can this be the teacher of Israel when he gathers with unclean people? How can he speak for God when he, when he eats a meal with the tax collectors? How can the Messiah be the one that, that hangs out with these re- reprobates and, and, and hangs out with the, the dirty people of society, these, these horrible people? How can this be good? And they grumble in their hearts and they... They don't understand what he's doing and they judge him for it. Jesus does not just leave them to their grumbling. I love whenever you see the Pharisees, sometimes it's things that they're thinking in their mind. Sometimes it's things that's coming out of their mouth. But every time that you see the Pharisees have thoughts like this, you see Jesus Christ address it. He doesn't just leave it alone. He doesn't just let them go their own way. But he addresses their hearts and their minds and their thoughts. And he does so here in our text by giving us three parables. These three parables are addressed to two distinct audiences. And we're going to see both of those today. The first audience, and the primary audience, of course, is the Pharisees themselves. That's who he is primarily addressing. The second audience, though, is those that are gathered around. The tax collectors and the sinners that were sitting there. Those that, those that the Pharisees were grumbling about, they were hearing these things as well. And so these parables were to them. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, as we're looking at these parables, we're going to talk about both of these audiences. We're going to address both of these things because these parables speak to us in both ways as well. So let's start by looking at these three parables. They have the first two parables are very similar. The first two parables first, we see something that is lost. You catch that in the very name of the parable that we have given the parables themselves. You have the parable of the lost sheep and you have the parable of the lost coin. But something in, is lost. Something has been misplaced. In the first one, as we just said, it's the lost sheep. The sheep has gotten in its mind that it's it's good to go into the wilderness. Somehow it has made a miscalculation as sheep are so often prone to do to go away that it shouldn't go. And in the wilderness there, is, there are predators. In the wilderness there is uneven ground that is dangerous. In the wilderness there is no guarantee of water. In the, in the wilderness there is no guarantee of nutrition. The wilderness is a dangerous place for sheep. And yet for some reason it has gotten in its mind, that's the way I should go. I'm going to leave everything else behind and I'm going to go out. It has lost its mind, whatever little mind it had. It has lost it and it has wandered away. The second one is a coin. And obviously a coin doesn't have a mind of its own, but this coin has been misplaced. The coin that is referenced here, by the way, would have represented about a day's wage for the average person. And so it's not an a small amount, but it, rather it, it's, it's a significant amount for the average person. But it has been misplaced. It, it's been lost. We understand that. We lose things all the time. I, whenever I do a project around the house, I always joke with Melissa that her job is to remind me where I put my tools. I know I laid my screwdriver here somewhere. Your job is just to follow me around and, and remind me of where I put things. Because otherwise I spend half my time not fixing something but trying to find where I put the screwdriver or whatever else, whatever other tool. I'm sure none of you men ever understand what I'm saying whatsoever. But that, uh, we, we lose things. It's just part of who we are. We misplace them. So we have something that is lost. The second thing that is similar is there is a diligent search. A diligent search takes place. 
the shepherd realizes that his sheep is missing and he leaves the 99 so that he may go find the one. Now, he doesn't abandon the 99. At this time, there would have been multiple shepherds. They would have grazed together in common spots. And so he leaves the 99 not alone, but under the care of an under-shepherd so he may go and search. If you think about it, he's going into the same wilderness, by the way, that the sheep did. He is going into a dangerous place himself that he may find one. And he doesn't have to do it. The shepherd could say, there are 99 more. I've lost 1%. That's not too bad. Who cares? But that's not what the shepherd does. Rather, the shepherd says, I must find the one. And Jesus' point is, this is common. He says, what one of you would not do this? A lazy man doesn't do this. The, the bad shepherd doesn't go look for a sheep. He says, if you're a good shepherd, you don't care that it's 1%. You're going to go find it. You're going to go look for it. He says the same is true of, of the lady. She has lost 90% of, or 10% of what she has. She has nine other coins. She could say that 90% is enough for her. But that's not what she does at all. But rather, she knows that she has lost this coin in the home. And you can easily picture what this is like, right? If you've ever misplaced your keys, then you know what this search was like. There is a tearing apart of the house. There's a rearranging of the furniture. There is sweeping. There is a little snide comments to family members who obviously moved your keys because you certainly couldn't have lost them. Like, there's all of this going on and she is making making a diligent search for what has been misplaced. She desperately wants to find this coin. In the same way, this shepherd desperately wants to find this one sheep, no matter what it takes. Jesus says this is the common thing to do. This is not extraordinary. It's not extraordinary for the shepherd to go look for the sheep. It's not an extraordinary thing for the woman to go to look for the lost coin. In the same way, it is, but in the in in kind of the same way, God looks and diligently looks for those that are lost. He goes to them, he searches them out, he pleads for them to come home. He offers the invitation. The third thing that we see here, though, that is in common is the great joy in finding what is lost. You see in verse 6, when the shepherd comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then you go down uh, just to verse 9, and it says, When she has found it, the coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. The common response to finding what is lost is great joy, overwhelming relief that what has been lost, what was, what was valuable, has now returned to its rightful place. We know this feeling. When you do find those keys that you had lost and it's like a great burden has been lifted off your shoulder, or when you put on that winter coat after a long summer and you stick your hands in the pockets and there, by golly, is a $20 bill and you're like, woohoo! Like, it's Christmas, right? You, have lo- you had something that you didn't even know was lost and you found it. Great rejoicing is to be had. And like, I don't know why, uh, for me, maybe this is just me, but you find that 20 bucks and you immediately want to spend it, right? Like, let's go to lunch. Like, today's a good day. But we know that joy. It pales in comparison to what happens in the throne room of God when a lost person understands and finds Christ. When one who has been headed towards destruction, when one who has fallen far away from God comes to their senses and realizes that they are in great need and they turn and they go the other direction, they put their trust in Jesus Christ, the celebration that happens in heaven, it... it, blows everything out of the water. The angels rejoice over one that has been found. By the way, he makes kind of a snide comment himself here a little bit. He says, 
I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He's not being literal that there are 99 righteous people. He's not saying that. What he is saying is, you are all sinners. Stop thinking that you're not. You Pharisees out there that are judging those that their sins are more apparent than your own, understand that you are in the same boat as they are. And you need repentance as well. There is none righteous. No, not one. But oh, oh, when the lost person, when the one who has fallen away from Christ, when the one who has gotten caught up in the ways of this world, when they come to their senses and they know Christ, what celebration there is. And oh, that we would join in that. Oh, that we would have that same joy. There's a third parable. And this parable is a little bit different. It's the parable of the prodigal son. There's a little bit more nuance, a little more detail in this. It's an incredibly well-known parable by many. It's used in movies and, and music and literature all over the world. It's used sometimes even you'll hear it in common day speech, just people talking about a prodigal, oh, he's a prodigal son. But maybe you're sitting here and you, you've never really studied the whole the whole sermon or the whole, the whole story. It begins with a man who is fairly well off. We know this. We see that he owns land, that he farms, that he has livestock of multiple kinds. Apparently he has goats and cattle from what we see in the story. He also has two sons. He has two sons. The younger of which is probably, based on the fact that he's not married and some other context clues we get uh, when we understand Jewish culture of the time, he's, he's probably in his late teens, early 20s. And this younger brother decides that he is going to make a decision, and it is an immature choice for sure. It's an immature choice for sure, as teenagers are prone to make, as young people are prone to make. He goes to his father and he asks him for his inheritance now. Now, part of me kind of kind of goes, there's some guts there to go to your dad and go, hey, I want this now. I don't want to wait until you pass away. I don't want to wait until you're older. Like, I want this now. There's some guts in that. But the father does what his, what his son asks. I find that interesting. The father could have said, no, you're being foolish. I'm going to protect you from yourself. But the father doesn't do that. The father divides his property. It would have been about, the, the older son would have gotten two-thirds. The younger son would have been a third. It was the benefit of being firstborn, of being the guinea pig of your parents, was that you got two-thirds instead of a third. I don't know why we still don't do that. I think we should. <laughs> but we have, that was, that was part of the deal. And so he divides. He gives a third of everything he owns, and he gives it, to his he gives it to this youngest son the dad knows what's going to happen he may not know the depths of what's going to happen he may not know the the great uh, trials that his son's going to go through but this dad i don't believe was dumb i don't think this was an an ignorant father i think this was a dad that said he needs to learn he needs to learn he's going to have to learn it on his own so he gives it to him and he says okay it's yours. Of course, the choice goes just about as well as we can imagine. He, he takes all of this wealth that he has now come into and he goes to another country. He wants to be away from everyone that knows him. He wants to be away from all of the restrictions that he has lived under. He wants to be away from his father's watchful eye. He wants to be on his own. So he goes to another country and he begins to spend all his money on all the good things of life, all the golden baubles that we get caught up in. He's a party boy. He's the guy buying rounds for everybody. He's the guy that all the girls want to hang out with because he buys them pretty things. He becomes, you got to imagine, he becomes incredibly popular as he becomes the life of every party, partly because he's probably sponsoring every party. And he begins to waste everything that he's been given. Until two things happen. The first is that he runs out of money. He runs out of money. The second is a famine. 
It's a disaster. And it is a disaster for this young man. His friends abandon him. The party life is gone. He has nothing to eat. No money. No hope. And so he finds what is quite possibly the worst job a young Jewish man could think of. He finds himself feeding the pigs. Jews did not touch pigs, much less eat them or raise them. They were unclean animals according to the law of God. And yet here he finds himself here he finds himself feeding them and not just feeding pigs but wishing that he could have and eat what he is feeding them. Wishing that he could take the table scraps that he is giving to them and eat them himself. And then he comes to a realization. He comes to a realization. I love what it says in the ESV here in verse 17. It says, but when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he made a realization. It gives the idea that everything that happened before, he was out of his mind. Everything that happened before, he wasn't fully aware of what he was doing. Everything that happened before, he was responsible for. He made those decisions, but he was not thinking clearly. But he comes to this realization, this divine realization, really. He says to himself, I am starving. I am among the pigs. And yet, my dad's servants have enough food. Like they, they, have a, they have more bread than they could ever imagine. What am I doing here? I need to go back home. I need to go back to dad. That's where... Things are good. Yeah, there were rules, and yes, there were things that I had to do, and there were chores, but at least I was loved. At least I was cared for. And notice here that it's not just a realization that things were good there, but it's a realization that he has screwed up. He says there in his little pre-prepared speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He realizes that he hasn't just screwed up against his earthly dad. He has screwed up against the heavenly father. He understands that there is repentance, that there is forgiveness that is needed. He needs to apologize and he needs to do something different. It is a divine realization. I want to take just a moment just to kind of do a mini thing here in looking at this passage, and I think I've, I know I've shared this before, but in looking at this passage, I had a Malagasy pastor point something out to me that I'd never seen before because I was dumb. But he, points the, he pointed this out to me. He said, have you ever noticed the grace of the famine? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? The grace of the famine? He says, Yeah. He, says, he, said, he, said, he sat there and he, he talked to me and he said, do you understand that if the famine doesn't happen, who knows what goes on? If the famine doesn't happen, more than likely the realization that takes place in this, in this man's life never occurs. If there's no famine, maybe his friends kind of pack him. They're like, oh, you paid for the last, you know, last 15 parties. We'll, we'll carry you for a while. If the famine never happens, he doesn't get so desperate that he finds himself among the pigs. If the famine doesn't happen, he doesn't realize how good the father was. If the famine doesn't happen, none of this stuff takes place. There is God's grace was in that famine to help that young man to see the problem clearly. The grace of God was in that famine to strip away all of the excess stuff that this young man had surrounded himself with that kept him from having a relationship with dad. The grace of God was in this famine to help him to see the truth. Friends, sometimes God uses the famine in our lives to strip away the idols of our life, that we may see the grace of God clearly. That we may see the love of God clearly. I know, trust me, I know, 
that it is hard to see God's grace when you're in the middle of the storm, when you're in the middle of the famine. But sometimes we need to just take a big deep breath and stop and ask the Lord, what what grace are you trying to show me in the midst of this difficulty? What are you trying to get my attention for? Sometimes we need to stop wallowing in the mire with the pigs. We need to understand what the Father is trying to teach us. He makes this great revelation. And so he starts home. He repents. He understands his his sin. He understands the mistakes he makes. And he goes home and he has this speech all prepared that he's going to tell his dad, I'm sorry, I don't deserve to be your son anymore. Please just hire me on as a hand, as a, as a farm hand. And he starts down the path. On the other end, you have this father, this loving father. Life does not stop for him. He, he, you know, he continues to farm, that he continues to go back, but you know that his heart must break. His heart must break every time he thinks of his son. That he watched him watch, walk down that road and over the horizon, never knowing if he was going to see him again. It's possible that he may have gotten rumors of what was happening. We see the older son at the end say that they know that he wasted his money on prostitutes. It may be that he was getting some stories back from people that had traveled and heard of this kid and what was going on. And I'm sure every day he looked up at that horizon and he looked down that road and he prayed, let this be the day that he comes home. Bring him home. Keep him safe. You can only imagine this dad, maybe he was tending to a field, maybe he was checking the cows, and he looks up and he thinks of his son and he looks down that road like he had done so many days before, and there is a figure walking down that path towards the farm. And he probably had to blink a couple of times like, That can't be him. That can't be him. But there's no mistaking that gait, the way his shoulders hang, the way his head looks. There's no mistaking that is my son. And what does the father do? It says that he has great compassion and he runs to his son. This was unthinkable, by the way. This would have been startling for the Pharisees and those listening to hear. Elder Jewish men did not run to other people. You ran to them. You came to them. They didn't go to you. But this father can't contain himself. He runs to his son. He throws his arms around him. You can only imagine what this kid smelled like. He throws his arms around him. He embraces him. The Greek there is that he threw himself on. He like he tackled him. This is how my daughter hugs. Like she sees another kid and she runs full force into him, just tackles him all day. I am so excited. That's this father. Full force. And the son starts with a prepared speech about, I'm, not, I'm sorry, I, I screwed up, I, I'm not worthy to be your son. And the father interrupts him. He doesn't let him finish his statement. He says, well, hold on. And he yells at the servants, go get this guy some new clothes. Go bring him some shoes. Bring him a ring. By the way, there's great importance in that ring. That ring, more than likely, was, the, was, part of, was a signet ring. It, was, uh, it had a stamp, a seal on it. It meant you were family. It meant you belonged. He doesn't allow for the son to finish the statement about being a servant. He says, you are my son and you are home. And you get all the privileges that come with that. That ring allowed you to buy and sell. That ring allowed you to borrow. That ring was a promise that your word was good. Because the family would back you. This son who had wasted a third of his father's wealth was welcomed back and said, you are ours and we are with you. 
And this father does the same thing that the shepherd does and that the woman does. He throws a party. He's excited. He's overjoyed. His son has come home. And we wish that was where the story ended. (laughs) We wish that we could stop there. But unfortunately, it's not. Unfortunately, there is a bitter brother. There's a bitter brother. This is the Pharisees. This is those believers whose heart has grown hard. Who don't understand why would we why would we change things? Why would we do things differently? Why would we spend money on that? Why would we want to do this? They have grown hard in their hearts. They have forgotten that they once too were lost. And they once too had to be found. They are the bitter brother who complains, you have never done anything for me. I have done everything you have asked. I have been here. Where is mine? I love the father's response. Father could have been, the father could have been like, you know what, just stay out here until you get yourself together and then you can come in. (laughs) The father could have said, ah, don't worry about him, he'll get over it. That's not what this father does. It says that the father went out. The father went to him just as he had went to the prodigal son. He goes out and it says he entreats him. He begs him. Come in. Celebrate with us. And when the son gives this speech about not getting his and feeling neglected, the father reminds him, everything that I have is yours. You have the entire place. It's yours. All of it. We have the kingdom. You're already a child of God. You're here. You're in. Don't forget that. But there was one who had been lost and now he's found. Let's go celebrate. You see, the message that Christ gives to the Pharisees is not necessarily just one of of a slap on the wrist. It's not just condemnation. It is an invitation. Hey, you guys that are grumbling, come join us. Come celebrate with us. You that have a hard heart, soften your heart towards the ones that are lost and come join us. We want you. This invitation is for you too. This love and compassion and grace are extended to you as well. I said earlier that there were two audiences. One of them, of course, was the tax collectors and the sinners who most certainly were there listening to this. And they identified, I am the lost sheep. I am the lost coin. I am the prodigal son. We too are the lost. We too have been separated from God. We are like that sheep. We are like that prodigal son who we make immature decisions. We make dumb decisions. And we chase after what the world says is good. We chase after wealth. We chase after uh, position. We chase after power. We chase after prestige or glory in the eyes of others. We chase after whatever it may be. And we find it empty. We find a wilderness where there is no guarantee of safety. We find a wilderness where there is only death. We find a country where there is no true friend, but only famine. And in those moments, we understand that we can't find our way home. The shepherd cannot simply wait for the sheep to come home because the sheep will never come home on its own. The sheep can't find its way home. In the same way, friend, when we go away from God, we can't find our way home again without Him. It's impossible. It's impossible for us to come close to Him again. It's impossible for us to pay for the mistakes that we've made. It is impossible. We must have Him lead us home. But there is good news. He values you. You ever thought, this is the God of all creation. Everything in the universe is His. Everything in the universe is under His control. All of the angels sing His praise. He, we are the 1%. We are the one sheep out of 99 that we are not worshiping Him. And yet He sees us and He pursued us. He desires us. He has loved you. He wants you. 
We see God's great love in this, in that He created you. He made you. He formed you. He knows you. He knows everything that you have ever thought. He knows everything that you've ever done, whether it's in the open or whether it's behind closed doors. He knows everything that you have done wrong. He knows everything that you have done and thought that was evil. And yet He pursued you. He pursued you. God of all creation stepped out of all the glory of heaven so that He could take on flesh so that He could feel the pangs of hunger the way that we do. So that He could feel thirst the way that we do. So that He could experience grief the way that we do. But He did it all perfectly, without sin, without making a mistake, so that when the time came, He could lay His life down on the cross, so that He could suffer a great and horrible death where they drove nails into or thorns into his head and mocked him and made fun of him where they beat him until he was unrecognizable where he hung on a cross where the only way to draw a breath is to pull yourself up on the nails driven through your wrists and through your feet he died pursuing you he died so that you could come home and now he waits God is a good Father. And there are certainly times that He disciplines. But God in His great wisdom also lets us sometimes just have what we ask for. And He allows us to wander knowing that what awaits us is not good. And He puts things in our lives and He gives us invitations to come home. And He waits for you. Just as the Father waited for the Son. Friend, if you are here and you have wandered far away from Him, know that He waits for you. That His invitation is open to you. That you can become family. If you will ask Him to forgive you. And if you will come home and follow Him. There's a second second audience though. There's the bitter brother. There's the Pharisees. We're going to try to go through this quickly, but... There's another audience that Jesus is speaking to and really it's the primary audience. It's those that look at Jesus' association with those whose sins are in the open, with the tax collectors and with the sinners, maybe those that, that society says are no good. It's those that look at Him doing that and say, what is He doing? Why is He doing it? They're the, it's those that are bitter against the attention that's given towards the lost that have come home. These stories address them primarily. These stories make the love of Christ obvious. They make the love of Christ obvious. Why does He hang out with sinners and tax collectors? Because He is searching for children to come home. Because He loves them. It's His mission. He says in the Scriptures, Jesus says in another place, I am the physician and I have come for the sick. Doctors come for the sick, not for the well. And yet sometimes we play the role of Pharisee. Sometimes we start to think it's all about us. Sometimes we start to think about where is mine? And we start to think about the church no longer in terms of of service to God and to worship of God, but ra- and what He has already done for us, the inheritance that is given to us in all of heaven. We forget about that and we begin to think of it more as a social club and a, and a country club where everything's about us. We pay our dues and we get something. Where is ours? And our heart gets hard when it seems like others are getting more than we are. And we get bitter and we get jealous. We get angry. We become, we start to grumble the way these Pharisees do. And Jesus entreats us as well. Come home. Stop being this way. Join in the celebration. Join in the joy of the mission. And so the question comes to us. If the love of Christ is so obvious for those that are lost, 
and we are to imitate Him, and we are to look like Him, then where is our love? Where is our compassion? Where is our grace? I had the great privilege of being able to worship with some brothers and sisters in Chicago last weekend. and I told the pastor there, I'm going to steal from you just so you know. The first time I'll give you credit, the second time I'm just going to take it. But he said this, and the whole, the whole group gasped when he said it, but it was true. He said, Christians have been good at socially distancing long before COVID. We have been good at separating ourselves from the world long before a pandemic turned everything upside down. We've been good at saying that those that live a different lifestyle than us, that we, don't, we are not going to associate with them. That we're not going to speak to them. That we're not going to invite them into our homes. That we're not going to love on them and care for them. Because they are them. And we are us. We have been good at socially distancing for a long time. When will we change? Brother, sister, maybe it's us. More so than the lost that needs to confess this morning. That needs to confess before a loving Father who went and searched for us and found us. Maybe it's us that needs to confess. I have social distance from them too long. I have not had them in my home for too long. I've treated them as others for too long. We are the hands and feet of Christ. We are the love of Christ towards a world that is hurting. When I was at HLG, and I'll share this story very quickly and then we'll be done. When I was at HLG, we, I got the opportunity often to speak with Americans and, and Christians who wanted to do missions. And it was great. It was fantastic. And I loved talking to them about it. And I, I loved just having those conversations. But one of the things that I always enjoyed asking them was, where do you want to go? Where do you feel like God's calling you? And these college students would say, I want to go to China. I want to share the gospel in China. That's awesome. I'm excited for you. Where do, what dorm do you live in? Oh, I live in Nuncook. Fantastic. Did you know that if you would go to the second floor, the right-hand side as you get off the stairs and go down three doors, that there's a Chinese kid who's homesick? Who needs to hear the love of Christ? Who needs someone to eat lunch with him? My friend China came to you. And talk to another student. Where do you want to go? I want to go to South America. Well, congratulations. We have about 25 Brazilians on campus. And they all sit in the corner and they eat lunch by themselves. Partly because it's home and it's a way to, to socialize with someone that's like you. But partly because the Americans don't want to eat with you. Because they're different. You want to go to Brazil? Fantastic. Brazil came to you. Brothers and sisters. We want this place to be full. We want that place to be full. We want to hear the people of Vandalia worship the name of Christ in freedom. For we want the lost to be found. We want the broken to be healed. They're here. Go down. Let me explain this a little bit. Every day I have a map that sits in front of my face. And it's pins of all the places where people are members. And it's amazing to me that three quarters of Vandalia is covered in pins with names. But you look at the southwest section, and there are maybe three pins for that whole neighborhood. You want the lost to come and to be found? They're your neighbor. 
They're the person that sits next to you at Dairy Queen. They're the person that serves you gas. They're the person that serves your food. They're the person that you buy feed from. They're the person that you work with. You want to be a missionary? They're right here. May we confess that we have socially distanced too long. Let's pray. Father, we come before You. And I first, among my brothers and sisters, confess that it is easy to get caught up in life. That it is easy to get caught up in the hard things and the easy things. That it's easy to get caught up in the And all that the world tries to do, it's easy to get caught up in church stuff and to forget that You have given us a great mission to go and to share the love of God with the broken. To go and to share the love of God with the lost. To make a pursuit just as You have pursued us. Father, I confess... Lord, I am guilty. Lord, I confess on behalf of this church, we are guilty. Father, we have used all manner of excuses. Time, fear, a pandemic. Father, I pray that we would lay those at Your feet. That we would ask for boldness to have relationships with people to have people in our home that are different. To share a meal with someone that doesn't live like us. To show love and compassion for those that are in the famine. Father, I pray, Lord, that You would do that work in our hearts. Father, I pray for the one here that is that would confess that they have never known You. I pray for the one that says, I've never known the love of Christ. That I've never, I've lived life and I've made all sorts of decisions and I've found all of it empty. Father, I pray that You would do a work in their hearts as well. Lord, that this morning that they would know that You are a good Father who loves them well. And Lord, that they would confess and that they would come to You. We pray this in Your name. Amen.